This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, March 29th at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's an irrelevant idea when the liberals in this committee are just going to ram through whatever the f*** they want. Exactly. Yep. I withdraw that word. Conservative MP Scott Reed dropping an F-bomb two hours into a 16-hour meeting of the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs last week. That's just a flavor of the heated debate during four, yes, four days of filibustering after the Liberal government released a discussion paper suggesting changes to the standing orders. Those are the rules that govern the House of Commons. The Grits want to use their majority on the committee to force through a quick study, insisting that they're just modernizing the House of Commons. But the opposition accuses the Liberals of political thuggery, of trying to make their rivals mere bystanders to the political process. And MPs? Well, they couldn't stop talking about it. The House Leader is in on this charade too, and the members, the Liberal members, even know it. They know this is not a discussion paper. They know this is an edict from the Prime Minister's office. The House Leader just said that she asked the committee, Mr. Speaker. She's asking them to do her dirty work. Mr. Speaker, there is no Liberal recommending that the Prime Minister work once a week. The only ones that's recommending that seems to be the Conservatives. This Prime Minister is going further than Stephen Harper would have ever dared to do. And telling Canadians he only wants to show up in question period once a week. We are proposing ways to discuss how to improve the quality of debate, and allow the government to be held to account in a thoughtful, responsible way, and this kind of shouting is what they get. That's not worthy of this parliament. It's not worthy of the people they serve. We really could replace them with a cardboard cutout. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. Joining me this week to unpack this showdown over procedural changes are Katie O'Malley, a parliamentary reporter with iPolitics, and Ryan Maloney, HuffPost Canada's senior politics editor. I don't think anyone is under any illusions that this is what this is about. And uh, it's clearly about the idea of, you know, giving the Prime Minister one day a week that he has to show up here to be accountable to Canadians. It's clearly about giving Liberal MPs another day off. Uh, Justin Trudeau can be the dictator that he wants to be. But this tissue of lies that this government is acting on, this contemptible abuse of our system is beyond anything I have seen. It is typical of the kind of arrogant, selfish, rude individual who goes out there and elbows other members aside. I've never seen that happen either. I've never seen anybody other than your prime minister go out there and physically assault a member in the House of Commons. And you insult that by having the audacity to hold it up and suggest that somehow that gives legitimacy to this bullshit. And this doesn't end well. It only took less than 12 hours. I'm already swearing. I'm going to hear from my mom. (laughs) She, she, She gives me heck every time I do that. Not your typical committee meeting. I'm joined uh, in Ottawa with Katie O'Malley here with me and in Toronto with HuffPost's Ryan Maloney. Well, let me start with you, Katie. (laughs) Why is the opposition so upset? 
So there are a couple of reasons why the opposition is so upset. First of all, there the, are the actual proposals being put forward by the government, which would, I think it's fair to say, definitely limit the ability of the opposition, particularly in a majority house, to express its disapproval of legislation, shall we say, in ways beyond simply debate. Things like filibustering, things like moving motions and delaying stuff happening. Those are definitely not popular moves, understandably so. They're also, they, for some reason now, hate the idea of a prime minister's designated question time, even though this is something that's been raised in the past and everyone thought, oh, maybe the Brits seem to like it. Why don't we look at that? But they see it, perhaps reasonably, who knows, as that would mean the prime minister wouldn't be in the house for any of those other days. So that's just not on. And finally, they are again, not convinced that it would be more family-friendly or modern to drop the Friday half-sitting. And this actually came up a year ago when the same committee was looking at making the House of Commons more family-friendly. You can't see my quotes, but I'm making little quotes in a face. <laughs> because it, it really... It, it didn't go over well with the opposition party. They kind of raised their eyebrow and said, hey, isn't this just us giving us our, ourselves another day off? Which, of course, prompts these long arguments. But, but no, no, MPs work very hard in the constituency. But anyway, there was no consensus there. And he, having that come back up, I think, really tells the opposition parties they're not listening to us at all. And that's the second thing they're angry about, which is the process and the way the government just sort of dropped this discussion paper out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, right before the House rose for another constituency break, and then came to the committee and said, oh, by the way, you guys, here are our proposals. We'll give you until the start of June to study it, which is really, that may sound like a lot of time. It's really not a lot of time. So everyone was kind of on edge before the discussion even started. And that's what led to the marathon filibuster at committee, which is, I think, hit 23 hours, not straight, but over the course of a week and begins again when MPs get back. Yeah, four days. I'm going to ask you to get in the weeds, but first, (laughs) I'm going to go to Ryan. Do you think the opposition is overreacting? Well, first of all, I think I need to get uh, that clip of David Christofferson yelling bullshit as my ringtone or alarm in some way to get me fired up for the day. That was fantastic. Um, Are they are they overreacting? I think I think it's important to remember, you know, that uh, liberals have a majority; they can do essentially whatever they want, but. The opposition members, you know, they still have a role to play, an important role. They take that role seriously. Uh, the time that they spend in Ottawa, that's time away from their family, their friends, their communities, and they want it to matter. So anything that might infringe on their ability to hold the government to account, to discuss things that they want to talk about, um, I think that uh, I can understand why they'd be sincere in being offended by that. So while there's definitely political points being scored and maybe some hyperbole around this debate, I I tend to think that it's legit, the anger, and I I tend to to think it's fair. So Katie, you you mentioned a few things. The Prime Minister's question period, uh, Friday sittings, and the lack of filibuster. But tell us, basically, what are some of the... neutral or perhaps positive things that the minister is suggesting and what in your view are some of the poison pills that they've stuck into this discussion paper okay so let's start with the we'll start with the positive because that's always a good approach um one thing that the the liberals are sort of suggesting and this goes along with what they've said in their election platform and have said all along which is they don't want to do omnibus bills they feel like omnibus bills which were used arguably abused by the last government both in majority and in minority what this proposal would do is give the speaker the power to split those bills so they could then be sent to different committees and bits couldn't necessarily be sort of held hostage so that's that's probably a positive move I would I would see that as being something that most uh, and in fact even the MPs around the table no one seemed to have a problem with that although then some of the filibustering 
some of the opposition MPs did raise the idea that you're asking the speaker to take on a less a role neutral that, role. Yeah, it would, again, you'd, you'd have to f- sort of finagle a way of doing it so the speaker was not, I mean, the speaker does take sort of an executive role on other matters on certain times only procedurally. But yeah, you would want to make sure that it didn't turn into kind of a political issue. And then I'm going to mention electronic voting in the sense that it is, it's really interesting. Like I should, I, I will declare myself, I am passionately opposed to electronic voting. I think MPs, I like to watch them stand up in the House. I think it's a critical part of our democracy. But that said, there are people that argue that it could be done a lot more quickly if you did just have perhaps an American style system where they push buttons or whatever. That's an interesting one because you will find views like mine and the exact opposite in every party. So it's not actually divided down party lines, which is why I'll call it neutral in the sense that it's not so much the government against the opposition. You're going to find MPs on all sides that think it's a fabulous idea and MPs on all sides that think it's a terrible one. So that would those would pretty much be... The non-controversial, shall we say, uh, proposals that the government could probably get uh, at least some consensus on. Everything else is a bit problematic. Um, We'll go back to the Prime Minister's question time. Well, this is something that the House even voted, you know, New Democrat and Liberal MPs, and I think even some Conservatives voted in favor of that idea in 2010. The fear on the part of the opposition, and again, we don't know if this is reasonable or not, is that once you designated that one day for the prime minister, he wouldn't bother showing up for the other four days. And they don't like that idea. They don't like the the notion of the prime minister basically being able to be MIA during question period for, you know, four days out of five. Or if they, I guess they go to a four-day week for, uh, for three days out of four. So that's definitely, they see that as an accountability issue. And for practical reasons, it's also true that question period tends to be, rightly or wrongly, what we, the media, pay the most attention to. We also get much more interested in it when it involves the prime minister. So there's probably some fear there that they put the same effort into every question period, but they're not going to get that coverage if the questions aren't being directed to the prime minister. So that's an issue, too. Um, And on the the sort of the changes, oh, the other big one is programming. And what that would basically do is institutionalized time allocation for bills. And this is a really interesting kind of conundrum, though, because the liberals actually don't really like using time allocation. The last government because did Because we don't like it. <laughs> we don't like it, but they also, they look at the last government, the Harper government, which used it, you know, a hundred times over, literally a hundred times over the course of the majority when they were doing it with every bill. The liberals don't want to do that. At the same time, sometimes they have legislation that they would like to get through the House, and they hit this point where the opposition parties are just going to keep putting up speakers, people to speak on on bills and they can't agree on a timeline. So what this would do, again, as a British practice, is institutionalize programming. You would have a debate at the end of second reading where the government would say, okay, we'll give you three days for committee and four days for report stage and two days for third. You debate that motion, you vote on that motion, and then it's done. I mean, in a majority government, obviously, at that point, the government would just be able to set whatever timelines it, it wants. The opposition, for obvious reasons, do not like this. They don't like time allocation in general, and they certainly don't like the idea of of making it such an institutionalized part of parliament. So that's definitely, uh, I see that as almost a a non-starter in terms of actually getting some consensus. Ryan, to me, one of the things that was really interesting was basically they're filibustering to preserve their right to filibuster at committee <laughs> uh, because the government wants to shorten the speeches at committee to like 10 minutes. And the other idea on programming, for mm. example, like if you have a really serious bill like medically assisted dying, for example, do you really want to constrict it, it to a certain time frame? Mm-hmm. Thoughts on that, Rye? Well, we were sort of talking about that, and and that we were talking about that yesterday in terms of time allocation on things like assisted dying, which is 
um, a place where MPs want to not only express sort of how they came to it uh, legally, but they want to talk about maybe their personal views, their moral kind of views, and they want sort of time to express that. So it's not just, you know, they're voting a certain way. They really feel like they, they need that space. And the idea of uh, restricting that, um, I can see why that would offend them. Um, time allocation is always tricky in that res- in that respect because – uh, obviously, it's a way to speed things up, but it, I can't imagine why any opposition uh, would be happy to see their, their time cut, right? They want to they speak. Well, the other issue is, I mean, the government can now bring in time allocation. I mean, that's the reality in majority government. The other concern you might have is if you set time allocation at the beginning of the debate, thinking perhaps that it was going to be a much more simple conversation, but things change, maybe stuff comes out of committee and everyone suddenly realizes they have a lot more to say, you could, in theory, be locked into a more limited debate. So it really, I think it actually takes away flexibility, not just from the opposition parties, but frankly, also the government. That's a good point. I also like the opposition's point that actually the prime minister could answer questions, every question on Wednesday, if he wanted to right now. It's very true. I'm going to stop it there for a second. Before we move on with more with the panel, I want to introduce you to MDP MP David Christofferson. I spoke with him on Friday before MPs headed off to their writings. He's one of the MPs who's been filibustering for, well, hours on end. You heard him at the top of the show. And he's promised to continue for years if needed. Here's why. Uh, I'm David Christofferson. I'm the MP for Hamilton Centre. And I'm a member of the PROC committee, a vice chair, actually. Uh, What's going on? Well, the government declared war on the opposition on Tuesday by refusing to agree that changes to our standing orders would only be by all-party agreement. They not only said they were not in favor of that, they pulled a uh, parliamentary ambush, forced the committee uh, that started on Tuesday to continue meeting here in parliamentary la-la land while I'm doing this interview on a Friday. Technically, it's only Tuesday in that room because the government pulled the nuclear pin and forced the, uh, the opposition into a 24-7 filibuster situation. It wasn't of our choosing. It was the government's. And what we're doing now at its core is fighting to preserve the right, as we have historically had, to have all-party agreement before any changes are made to our standing orders, which are the rules by which we pass laws in our parliament and the conservatives and us the NDP as uh, official or as uh, opposition parties are united we are working together you saw that with our activities before the last budget and uh, we were prepared to sit all week 24 7 because we've got uh, right on our side in this case we are in the middle of uh, uh, filibustering on the government side or on the opposition side because if we lose this filibustering argument we may lose the ability and the right to filibuster forever It's that serious. Why is it important for the opposition to retain the ability to filibuster? For this very reason. It is the one real arrow in our quiver that allows us to effectively at least slow the government down. And I liken it to strikes. A strike in Ontario, over 90% of collective agreements are, are settled without a strike or a lockout. But the threat of it at the table provides the tension on management to come to a reasonable conclusion. And so if you remove that right to strike and you don't have arbitration, you're basically left with collective begging. And this is the same sort 
sort of thing, that uh, filibuster allows you to all stop the government, but many, many, it doesn't use very often. Last time I was in a filibuster was on C-23, the Unfair Elections Act. So they happen like once or twice a parliament, but more importantly, at the committee level, the threat of it in numerous cases will have the government to sit back and say, okay, wait a minute, do we really want to go down that road? Okay, well, well let's try this language. And it brings them, it gives the opposition party some counterpoint to the absolute power of a majority government. If you remove that, all we're doing is saying to majority governments in the future, you can be more dictatorial than even Stephen Harper was, and now the rules are going to let you. That's what we're not going to let happen. And I guarantee you, this is a war the opposition will win. And why is it so important for the opposition to ensure on unanimity when it comes to changing the standing orders? Oh, well, again, you know, Canada's a, a, a sport country. Most of us have been on a team of sport for one sort or another. And we all know that the first thing you have to do before you have any kind of engagement of competition is decide what the rules are going to be. And the only way that you can have a fair set of rules that everyone will agree on is if you have a fair set of rules that everyone agrees on. And so that's the, the premise here. What we're talking about, we call it our standing orders, but really what they are is the formula by which we pass the laws of this whole nation. And if you're going to change the way we pass laws, then it should be with all party support, not skewed in favor of the government of the day, because it needs to be a system that'll work no matter who's in government. And there needs to be the element of fairness in there. And we have a parliamentary system, not a car congressional system. And our system works best when we have a strong, healthy opposition, even in the face of a strong majority government. All that is at risk here if we don't preserve the right to filibuster and slow down a majority government that otherwise has all the power in the world to do whatever they want. You said the opposition will win. How can you be so confident? Because of, because of the, ju the, just, the justness of our cause. Uh, and, and I can't fathom uh, a parliament. I've been here, this is my fifth term. I can't imagine a parliament in the future where the rules of engagement on how we pass laws are not agreed upon by everybody participating. I can't imagine that world, and so I'm not going to let it happen, and I won't think about anything other than making sure it doesn't. So when you say you're definitely not going to let them win. That means you're prepared to filibuster at all costs till the rest of the session? Yeah, oh, the rest of the parliament, if necessary. That's a bit extreme, but it, yes. I, I have been working with my family and my staff to prepare to be here all week. I'm the member of the committee. I'll do the lion's share of the work. Colleagues, we're willing to come in. We're offering up their time. We were scheduling it. We are, there is nothing more important. If we lose the right to be effective as the opposition members, what will we do after those rights are gone? Then we just become, we might as well be cardboard cutouts. Uh, and so that's why this is, and, and I, for the life of me, I still can't figure out why the government took this approach. I mean, it's so bloody minded. It's so uh, the antithesis of what they ran on. And I think that's why you see uh, the conservatives in the NDP come together so easily over this because our cause is so just. Hi, I'm Scott Sims. I'm a Liberal Member of Parliament from Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'm proposing a motion to do a study on modernizing the House of Commons. Why do you think the opposition is adamantly opposed to the motion that you have brought forward? I do believe that some of their arguments for unanimity, because they want unanimity all around, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great goal, and I, that would be a goal of mine to have a unanimous report to change the House of Commons. But 
as though they feel they're right on target, I think they're wide of the mark. What this is, is a motion to start the study. If a motion is crafted to say that you have to have unanimity, it becomes a very small report. The potential of bringing all ideas from all different sides of this argument into this debate become very limited. Mr. Christofferson says he's really to fight this for the next three and a half years. How are you going to get agreement? How, how will this move forward? Well, we have to use better imagination, I guess. I'm, I'm still hopeful. Um, he has every right to do what he's doing. And uh, uh, to be quite honest with you, I'd rather enjoy some, a lot of his interventions. So we're back with Katie O'Malley from MyPolitics and HuffPost senior political editor Ryan Maloney. You've heard from David Christofferson and from Scott Sims, a Liberal MP who tabled this motion to force the committee to study the quote-unquote discussion papers, suggestion by June 2nd. The government leader who tabled the discussion paper, or rather released it publicly, Bartish Chagger, declined an interview. But uh, two days into the filibuster, she came out and she tried to explain why she is declining to box herself in, I guess, on a pledge to only move with unanimity. I do believe something that we heard time and time again in the, the election campaign was that Canadians did not feel that their voices were being represented in this place. Part of the commitment I made to my constituents was to better consult with Canadians, hence why this government has taken unprecedented levels of consultations. So we would like to have that conversation. What we are asking the committee to do is to broaden the scope of their study and to actually have this conversation so that we can try to modernize this place. Forward in, uh, without their pr approval, and therefore you have not you have not said specifically with, that you will only make those changes with the approval of everyone. Can you make that commitment today to maybe reassure them? So I believe that we can work better in this place, and that's always a commitment that I have made. It's an important conversation that we continue to have. It's a conversation that I would like the committee to start and to incorporate in their study. Uh, rather than not be part of the question, I would like to be part of that discussion. I really do believe we need to start the study for us to have these other conversations. But until we actually look at the evidence and look at how we can improve this place, we need to actually look at the commitments we made to Canadians that we are committed to delivering on. So. Katie, why is the government clinging to this idea that they do not necessarily need unanimity? Honestly, at this point, I don't know if they know why they're clinging to it, because it actually does sound like kind of a terrible idea when you really think about it, particularly since these are the rules. These are the rules of the House. These are for everyone. These do not, you know, directly affect the lives of any Canadian who isn't on Parliament Hill. So that makes it one of those issues where you would think, and the practice has always been historically, that you would not want one party that happens to be in government at the time forcing through changes that will affect Parliament forever after. And I think that that's, that's the main criticism and the opposition parties have, why the government decided it doesn't want to make that commitment, it's, it, to be honest, it's not totally clear to me. I get that they figured they can't get consensus or even one party on side for some of these issues and they still want to be able to have that possibility of moving forward. But I also, to be honest, I wonder 
if they have the appetite to really do that. If it really came down to it and they were going to have to sort of steamroll over all of the parties to change the rules of the House, man, that does not look good on the Liberal brand. That is not, you know, open and transparent and respectful for Parliament. In the sense, by withholding any commitment to consensus, they are giving themselves some leverage to agree to it in future. So this may be a negotiating tactic, but I don't think it appears to be working all that well. So is this maybe a lesson learned from the Electoral Committee where they didn't want to give the opposition any power and then they were finally pressured into it in part because of the whole kerfuffle Mm -hmm. over Motion 6 where, if we'll recall, the Liberals basically tried to suspend the opposition's powers for a few months, giving the cabinet control over the House of Commons, which nobody was happy about. And that led to, well, elbow gate. Fisticuffs. Fisticuffs (laughs) on the floor. And then they pulled back and agreed to give an opposition majority on the special committee. And the minister kept talking about Mm -hmm. how she wanted consensus. And at the end, the opposition found consensus, but the liberals wouldn't agree. Ryan, your thoughts? Golly, I think that this feels a lot like the kind of electoral reform issue in the sense that it seems to be, at least right now, like it's headed towards that kind of messy place where I'm not sure that they have the great a great message, they have a great place to, to argue this. I think that framing it like a discussion paper uh, makes it seem like they've maybe learned a lesson from the Motion 6 fiasco, which was which felt a lot like it was in the dead of night, an attempt uh, retaliation for an embarrassment that the liberals nearly lost a vote. Um, it felt a little bit more cynical, whereas this, they're just saying, hey, it's just a conversation. It's just a discussion, nothing to worry about. But certainly those same parallels are there in terms of perhaps the, the minister in charge of leading it through is, 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 um, is facing some tough questions and not giving very clear answers. And it has a potential to resonate if I think opposition... Um, if opposition MPs can focus on those things that average Canadians can really get behind, which is, you know, the idea of the Friday sittings going away and the idea of the prime minister only uh, coming to question period once a week. Um, I don't know that average Canadians necessarily care so much about what goes on in committee or all those changes, but if they can hang their hat on those types of issues, then that can do damage to the brand. I think as Katie was pointing out in terms of being, Hey, sunny ways, and we're all going to try to work together not not so not so right now. Well, let's talk about brand because they did talk about in the election campaign making parliament more transparent and open and accountable and democratic and some of the proposals none of which actually have the word modernizing parliament or family friendly parliament in the platform. But all the moves that they did talk about seem to be about a more collegial and open place and none of these changes seem to reflect anything the Liberals ran on. No, they don't. And it make what makes it even more bizarre, if you listen to the House leader, Ms. Chaga, when she comes out, she invariably goes on about how she wants Parliament to work better and she wants to work with her other colleagues. And this is well, these, you know, ostensible colleagues that she wants to work with are sitting on the other table basically building a bunker in an effort to protect Parliament from her. So if that was the plan, they don't appear to have gone about it in a particularly uh, effective and strategic way. I have to think, I think part of the motivation here on the part of the Liberals is they are, they can look at a calendar just like the rest of us. They know that they're coming to the halfway point in their mandate. They haven't gotten, if you if you compare their record to the previous government, they haven't gotten as much legislation through. And that is as much because, it's not because they haven't introduced it, it's because they haven't used time allocation to the same extent and they have kind of let Parliament have its head. 
Well, I personally, as someone who loves Parliament, enjoy seeing that, and I don't judge a Parliament by how many bills it passes. I can see how a government might start to think when they head back out on the campaign hustings, they're going to want to be able to point to stuff. And they're not necessarily going to want to say, well, look at all these great bills we introduced. None of them actually passed because we weren't able to get, you know, them through the House of Commons. But boy, did we have ideas and you can like look at that bill at second reading. So I think that might be part of the motivation as well is this issue of they're, they're probably, I mean, I think we all assume they're probably going to prorogue over the summer just because it's a natural point for doing another throne speech. When you do that, you generally want to have a list of achievements and you want your list of achievements to have lots of bills passed. At the moment, they don't really have that. So I think that that might be playing into the mindset as well. And in fact, in September, I wrote a piece about how the Liberals had nine bills passed in their first few months of Parliament, the worst record in decades. And actually somebody, I think it was a Conservative MP, mentioned that story during a filibuster this week. But you're right. I mean, it doesn't look great, but they could also bring in time allocation and save themselves this issue. They would just need to take some flack for it with the public. But Ryan, let me go back to Brand for a second, because I'm curious if you think this is going to do lasting damage to the brand. That's the thing. It's a question of whether or not this kind of stuff will stick with Canadians. And I think there is potential there because, you know, the, the conservatives and to a lesser extent, maybe the, the new Democrats are really trying to hammer on Trudeau as sort of arrogant or someone who's not particularly interested in being in the House of Commons. We've seen that uh, in different lines of attack for months now. Um, so this could potentially feed into that. Um, whether that's fair or not, that is an image that can stick with Canadians when they see him, you know, next week in New York or, or, or you know, missing question period and things like that. I think that question period, you know, maybe a lot of Canadians don't spend a lot of time watching it or they'll cover, you know, they'll, they'll read our stories about it. But I think they understand that that's not necessarily the most comfortable time for a prime minister. That's when they're getting, you know, challenged. That's when they're getting called out. So I think the idea that he's skipping it, whether that's fair or not, uh, only wants to limit it to once a week. That can resonate with people who I think, uh, you know, have to go to work five days a week and have to do all kinds of stuff at their job that they don't like. So I think that that can resonate, but it's we'll have to see. I mean, I thought after Elbowgate happened that, you know, some of those, that narrative of, uh, you know, would, would be exposed as perhaps not, not what we think it is, but it didn't really seem to affect him because perhaps people overplay their hands. But people like Mr. Christofferson and Mr. Reed are pretty good at, at, at making this case, so we'll see. Yeah, Scott Reed, the Conservative MP, who basically led off the filibuster <laughs> last two days. I was surprised last week, in fact. You know, all this is happening. Committee members mm-hmm. are filibustering basically around the clock, and the Prime Minister decides to go campaigning on Thursday and Friday. It's a, yeah, it's a, I would have been fascinated if he'd run into one of those MPs while he was like wandering the streets of New Edinburgh for the Ottawa Vanier candidate. But yeah, um, it's there's also, to Ryan's point, there's also the hypocrisy line, which the opposition parties have been trying to hit Trudeau with on a number of issues. There's the feminist thing, you know, fake feminist. There's this notion of presenting him as being not only not what he is billed, but actually doing the opposite. And this kind of plays into that as well. But again, it does come down to whether or not there's sort of that that public interest and that, you know, if you can tap into that vein of public outrage. I do think that even though Canadians might not tune into Question Period and they may not even read all of our stories on them, although they really should, they're all brilliant, every single one. <laughs> they should definitely. Read your stories for I, sure, Katie. They, <laughs> they should. I think they like the idea that it's happening. Even if they're not going to watch it, they like the idea that somewhere the Prime Minister of the Day is going to be in that chamber every day and he's going to be getting tough questions. It's a it's a reassuring thing. You don't even have to tune in to know that at least this accountability is happening, so that's taken care of. I could see that that, again, being something that would niggle away at people. 
I, just hold I, off by asking you. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I was just going to second that. I totally agree. And I think if you think back to sort of the height of the Senate scandal, uh, where Mr. Mulcair really shone there with those very simple, direct questions, uh, Canadians did tune into that and did we're awfully thankful that someone was asking those questions, right? So if if at that time uh, he Mr. Harper was only coming once a week, that would be a problem, I think, for for lots of folks. But it's also not clear yet that he would that I should say that that the prime minister would only come once a week, right? It's not and really the liberals clear. Have, the liberals have actually gone out of the way to say no, no, we're not saying that. And another thing that I was thinking about is. You know, if the convention is that Trudeau really only answers questions from party leaders, there is a scenario where maybe the idea of your local MP asking a question to the prime minister on a very specific issue could be, you know, rather interesting. Um, but nothing prevents him from doing that now. Uh, true, nothing very true. The prime minister from answering questions that are not directed necessarily at him. Either. Very true, and even. You know, as he serves as youth minister, the NDP have made a point that he's not answering questions from the youth critic. So, yeah, good point. So if the Liberals are actually successful in doing this and they do not move with unanimity from all the political parties, what are the consequences for that in the House of Commons? Well, see, the thing is, I have a lot of faith in the ability of Parliament as an institution to resist even seemingly draconian changes. And my guess is this is in no way saying that this isn't a big deal because I think it would be a big deal for it to happen. Not willing to bet on whether it will or not yet. But I think that opposition parties, there's always a lever that you've never pulled before in the rules where you might think, huh, we don't have anything else. Let's see what this button does. And sometimes that will end up giving you a new way of, again, either delaying house business, of taking control of the commons agenda for a particular time, it would it would adapt. Opposition parties are very good at figuring out exactly what loopholes they need to go through to uh, express what I like to call parliamentary civil disobedience. And I suspect that there is no way that you could rewrite the rules so completely that you would remove all of those options. But that said, this would definitely force them to reconsider and look at new tactics and figure out other ways of, of, of doing so. And that could take a couple of months. That could even take an entire parliament. So it would be at least in the short term, it would definitely really make it more difficult for the opposition parties to do her job. And Her Majesty deserves a loyal and effective opposition, so I think that she would disapprove too. Well, we have here, definitely here. learned this week the value <laughs> of the filibuster. Certainly successful in getting the public to pay attention to something they otherwise would not be paying attention to. Kitty O'Malley, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Ryan Maloney, always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Thank you very much. To both of you, thank you. Thanks. Filibusters that last late into the night or into the wee hours of the morning can lead to some pretty interesting conversations, especially when people who've been speaking for hours on end forget what they're trying to say or just let sleep deprivation take over. Here are a few exchanges that caught our attention. Uh, I'm sure the Prime Minister is uh, fast asleep. Uh, perhaps he's, he's uh, you know, playing video games or something, but more likely he's asleep. Part of my, my uh, punishment to the government for what they've done is I'm going to start uh, with just, I'm going to start by singing. And I'm just going to hum, what a difference a day makes. 
Now I have completely lost my train of thoughts. Help me no. out here somewhere. Do you want to go back to cruise ships? No, no. I do not. <laughs> I have avoided cruise ships my entire life. In the movie, anyway, um, the, uh, the, the breaking point when they concluded that the captain is actually nuts was when he went crazy about who ate all his strawberries. I thought that was somewhat <laughs> apropos. Uh, because I don't understand what the government's doing. It makes no darn sense. It's okay. I don't. I don't. I don't drink that vile stuff. Uh, I. I, uh, um, uh, I am. Uh, uh, my my wife's a physician. So if she's if she's watching, let the record show that I declined uh, Red Bull. Um, so uh, and I, a Big Mac. If she happens to hear a can crack and open, it wasn't you. No. Yeah. That's right. If if. Uh, if she happens to hear someone opening a Red Bull can, uh, or two or three, that's certainly Blake. Well, I'm waiting for the Cheeseburger Brigade to wrap up. Excuse me for a second. Oh, sure. Are, are you reading the whole Magna Carta? No, 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 I'm not. No, 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 certainly. I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, quoting the relevant sections of it here. At the beginning of uh, Virginia's speech, he mentioned the Prime Minister and Minister are fast asleep. I have an email that tells me, please tell, remind the member I'm awake and I am listening. Okay, so uh, that, that was that, Mr. Jagger. If, if, if she's listening, I, I actually should probably go back to the Magna Carta. Well, that's it for this episode of Follow Up. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hey, give us a good review. We'd love to hear from you. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. Tell me what you think should be on the next episode. It takes a team to put this show together. A big thanks to talented co-producer Zian Lum. Technical producer Stephanie Warner helped stitch this week's show together. And Andre Lau is our executive producer. Stay tuned. We'll meet you back here in two weeks. Music